0: I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
3: Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanillo with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Today, Bitcoin falls below 30,000. Abandon ship here or hold on for dear life? Then no more Mr. Nice Guy. We debate Sundar Pichai's 10 years so far at Google. And later on, hot takes and
4: news from Tinder. The CEO is going to join us this hour, John. And checking in on some movers of the morning, GameStop and Splunk raising some new cash and Peloton launching a new corporate program. Uh, More on all of those movers and others throughout the hour.
0: We start with Bitcoin, though, and ask, is the bubble bursting? The world's most popular cryptocurrency falling below 30,000 for the first time since New Year's Day. Analysts have been eyeing 30,000 as a key support level for Bitcoin, but Galaxy Digital CEO Mike Novogratz said on Squawk Box earlier this morning that that level could actually be lower. It's
5: always hard to call a bottom.
2: 30,000, we'll see if it holds on the day. We might plunge below it for a while and and close above it. If it's really reached, 25,000 is the next big level of support.
0: Today's downturn is a more than 50 percent drop from the cryptocurrency's all time high just two months ago when Coinbase listed on the Nasdaq. Call that the peak. Since then, many of the big movements have been spurred by tweets from personalities like Elon Musk and headlines from China cracking down on Bitcoin mining and urging payment companies not to offer crypto services. Bitcoin, though, isn't the only cryptocurrency falling. Ether is falling fast as well. Dogecoin down 60 percent since June 3rd, when Coinbase also began allowing users to trade the meme coin. And Carl, some of the smaller coins have held up a little better than Bitcoin over the last few months. That is not the case today. It is right across the board for cryptos.
3: Yeah, Uh, D, Bitcoin is exactly where we're going to start with our first guest this morning, uh, who warns that this is not a crash. Uh, Kindred Ventures' Kanye Macabella is back with us to kick off the hour here on Tech Check. Kanye, welcome back. Good to see you.
2: to see you again, Carl.
3: So uh, with your help, we have watched price action in crypto at large, and we give it a pretty long leash because we know it's new and we understand it's volatile. Uh, Does this price action that we're witnessing this week and especially today, does it mean that the use case has
2: taken a hit? No, the use case hasn't taken a hit, but there are some things to consider. The first thing to consider is that you're seeing some hash rate volatility uh, coming out of China, but hash rate volatility is relatively normal. And so it's not atypical to see compute, which is ultimately what there's a global market for, for Bitcoin, move to jurisdictions that are the most supportive of it. And so China cracking down on that is actually indicative of Bitcoin actually moving to places from a mining standpoint where there's gonna be more support for it, first. Second of all, As you think about the price, uh, one of the things I like, actually, Cointure did an analysis talking about whether there was a predictor of a bear market. And so you want to look at uh, the short-term moving average and if it drops below the long-term moving average. So 50-day, 200-day. And if you're looking at that, you actually see that there's actually not the structural conditions for a major sell-off. After all, Bitcoin is still up 200% year over year. Ethereum is up 600% year over year. So while you are seeing volatility, which is typical with both of those assets, if you're looking at them on a long enough view, this actually isn't cause for immediate concern.
3: Right. And when you see technicians now, and I know, I mean, technicians is its own separate thing, but when you look at head and shoulder patterns that sort of telegraph targets in the, say, let's call it $5,000 range, um, I assume that, is that worrisome from the use case standpoint? And is it worrisome from the Coinbase standpoint, which I know Kindred has some?
2: Yes, uh, we are holders of of Coinbase. And the thing that I should note about Coinbase is Coinbase is a very, very long-term oriented platform that the best way to think about it is it's sort of going to try and become an app store for a lot of these currencies. And a lot of these currencies don't just have speculative value, but have use case value, as you pointed to and alluded to. And so with respect to use case, the way that the price moves is sometimes orthogonal to whether or not there's an important use case for it. So I'm actually still long-term bullish on the Coinbase case because they actually want there to be a vibrant app store with a large number of currencies, not just a handful of highly speculative assets. And then secondly, though, as you think about the use cases more generally as a function of price, one of those use cases is speculative value, but it's not the only one. And so what you're increasingly seeing is more and more use cases transacting in art, in lending, in staking, in other systems, and price volatility Is more complicated for that, but low prices aren't necessarily bad.
4: Yeah, Kanye, I I can't believe I'm going to do this, but I'm going to ask you about Dogecoin. Here's why. (laughs) It's because (laughs) it has been more volatile than a Bitcoin has been, and there's sort of less of an overall kind of blockchain use case around it, less of a sense of intrinsic value there. And I wonder if the, the dive in Doge might... Uh, indicate something about the markets, or at least the retail investors, appetite for risk. What do you think are the chances that that is or will be somewhat indicative? And then what is the impact on tech, maybe even early stage tech, if it is?
2: The way that I think about Doge is actually somewhat separate from a crypto and from a use case standpoint. I think the trend and the theme that you're seeing with Doge is the rise of meme investing. And we've been talking about GameStop, AMC, Wendy's. A lot of these names, even in the traditional public markets, which have seen crazy rapid price appreciations and then equally pronounced quick drops. Uh, And a lot of that is just indicative of the fact that retail investors are now flexing a muscle using social media, using Reddit and self-organizing in a way that they have never done before. And that's been happening over the course of the last year. So I think meme investing is in and of itself a trend. I think it's a very challenging trend for somebody who wants to be an investor uh, for the long term, who wants to be a patient investor, a more traditional and established investor. I wouldn't recommend uh, putting your retirement savings, for example, into Dogecoin. But I think that that's the trend that we're speaking to there. And I think that's going to play out actually in new apps that are using social investing as a way to actually get communication and building community and friendship and social networking might actually have investing categories and, app and aspects to it wow. more than anything
4: else. I also wonder how much of what we're seeing in meme stocks perhaps in Dogecoin has to do with easy money and easy access to leverage and whether, you know, the the, uh, inflation indications by the Fed last week combined with the caution perhaps that's moved into the crypto market with these China headlines
2: might be part of the story. Yes, but I think that while it may be the case that excess liquidity was the catalyst uh, it is now awakened to the imagination of the population. And so it's now the case that meme investing is clearly here to stay. The extent to which it happens may actually have some correlation with the amount of so-called easy money. But meme investing is now a new category that we all have to understand and grapple with more more seriously.
0: Uh, Kanye, it wasn't too long ago that Doge was actually the number three cryptocurrency by market cap Tether now has that title with, what is it, two times the trading volume as Bitcoin. We talked about it yesterday. Some are calling it sort of the weak link in cryptocurrencies or the black swan. How closely are you tracking its influence? And do you have some of the worries that others in the crypto sphere have about it?
2: I am tracking it. I'm tracking it quite closely because stable coins in particular are proving to be a very useful tool cross-border investing, for real-time settlements, uh, just a new transactional tool and method that a lot of uh, consumers all over the world are starting to adopt at scale. And USDT is obviously uh, a well-adopted, or at least a well-known stablecoin. But I would tread very carefully. And the primary reason why I would tread carefully is it's backed by highly non-transparent commercial paper. And the whole point of a blockchain is it's a public leisure. And the fact that you have so much difficulty understanding the results of their audit, understanding where that commercial paper comes from, whether it's Chinese denominated or denominated in USD, all those things are cause for me to to put my bumpers up.
0: Yeah, you're not alone there. Um, Let me ask you a little bit about leverage in the crypto economy. Um, You see Asian exchanges give a lot of leverage to their users. I think Novogratz called it this morning Macau 2.0. Do you think that some of that gets flushed out in the recent moves that we are seeing? And what does that mean for the crypto market in the intermediate to long term? We may not see as many big moves if that's, in fact, happening.
2: Yeah, I do think that there's well, there's a couple of issues relating to leverage that I want to quickly touch on, one of which is, yes, there's probably uh, more leverage being provided to uh, crypto traders and crypto activity than perhaps is appropriate for the fundamental value that's being transacted at the end user level. Uh, But the second is that crypto itself is still reasonably inefficient. And so there's a lot of over collateralization that still happens in crypto. And oftentimes when uh, you're borrowing, you have to hold just as much in collateral, if not more. And so these are some of the structural issues that a number of new DeFi platforms are trying to solve for. And one of the things that we're actively looking for in early stage investing is how to get some collateral out of the crypto transaction ecosystem, because right now it's over collateralized.
3: Hey, finally, Connie, I kind of like this, uh, this framework you've got looking at Fang as a proxy for America's economic health, particularly Amazon. But I know you're throwing Facebook in there as well, uh, because there's so much uh, attention paid right now to the transports and the Russell and the Dow. Can you just talk about why that's important?
2: Sure. I guess the first thing to note is if you look at the Dow industrial as an index, is it Actually, indicative of the things that we're all tracking is it indicative of small business? Is it indicative of job creation? Is it indicative of the health of the American? And while there are some aspects of that, I actually think that something like Amazon and something like even Facebook and Google might be more indicative of what we should think of as an index. The fact that there's a duopoly and maybe a you know a three-way relationship between uh, Amazon, Facebook, and Google just in digital advertising means that all of the small businesses, all of the large companies that are now roaring back and are now looking for new shoppers and new consumers and, frankly, even new hires are doing so on those platforms. And so the fact that you're seeing so much digital advertising growth and beating so many of the benchmarks that were predicted as of the end of last year is indicative, of my, in my view, of more health in the economy than an older index like the Dow.
3: Yeah, it'd be fascinating if it if it does turn into more of a, a macro tell in addition to just a sheer market cap story uh, about big tech. Connie, great way to start the hour. Uh, we love seeing you. Thanks so much. Connie Maccabella.
0: And John, did I hear you bring up Dogecoin? I mean, I know that you've been very skeptical of these meme coins and meme stocks even. So what do you make of this drop? It's down about 45 percent today alone.
4: Yeah, I mean, I to me, it's just natural skepticism of things, particularly in an up market, a hot market. And when these, um, I guess, assets that you can trade haven't really seen a down market. And I've been noticing, I mean, there was a while where uh, Dogecoin would be at around 30 cents and Bitcoin would be around 30,000 and they would move up and down together. And then at some point there was uh, a gap that opened up between the two and over the past couple weeks few weeks doge has dropped far more quickly than bitcoin has and it sort of reminds me of real estate you know when when the real estate market slows down there are certain areas maybe close in desirable areas close into the city that you know they they take a little bit of a hit but it's the exurbs that get hit harder and, and sometimes get gutted and i wonder whether the uh, in, in crypto, some of these might follow that pattern, but it's kind of early to see. We'll we'll keep watching it.
0: Yeah. Well, our next guest is a longtime Bitcoin bull. When he joined us last in May, he said the volatility is just part of the game. Have a lesson.
6: In crypto, in Bitcoin, you never really had to own Bitcoin more than 24 months to actually never lose money. So I think Bitcoin is hyper volatile. That's the nature of it, but that's what creates the reward for people. And again, even though Bitcoin is in the penalty box now, I still think it can exit the year over 100000
0: Well, it's in the penalty box once again here in Funstrats. Tom Lee is back with us. Uh, Tom, do you still think that it can get up to 100000 this year?
6: Uh, yes. I mean, Bitcoin's in a very rough patch now. Um, and, you know, I think the technical picture in the sort of current term doesn't look great. But we also have to keep in mind Bitcoin makes most of its gains in 10 days in a single year. So the idea that it's mm-hmm. below 30,000 now doesn't rule out the ability for this to generate some really big gains before year ended and, you know, potentially touch 100,000 or higher.
0: But, Tom, if some of the leverage is being taken out of the market right now, some of the retail investors who have been trading on a huge margin uh, leaves the market. Will it go up as quickly? Are we likely to see as many big moves even on the upside?
6: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think one perspective we have to keep in mind is, I mean, we've got a trifecta of pretty bad news hitting Bitcoin, you know, from basically national mining bans to, you know, Pretty tremendous regulatory scrutiny in the U.S., and if you look at any other year, these would have taken Bitcoin deep into a, a bear market, you know, into a crypto winter, and and yet Bitcoin's is really only fifty percent off its highs, and that's at a time when, as you're pointing out, there's really been an effort to reduce the amount of leverage in crypto and in on Bitcoin positions. So, I mean, with that trifecta, the fact that Bitcoin's kind of holding 30,000, of course, that's really a technical breakdown. I almost think that it it should be kind of viewed as pretty impressive, actually.
4: Tom, why is a national mining ban in China, you think, so bad for the price of Bitcoin right now? I mean, it's been pretty clear for a while that China wasn't a big fan of cryptos, that it can't control. Um, you know, it, it had talked about mining restrictions in the past. And I, I don't really get why, aside yeah. from maybe just sentiment, that there would be this reaction? What's your thought on that?
6: Uh, John, it's, that's really the key question. Um, you know, for someone who, you know, sort of appreciates blockchain technology and proof of work, the idea that there was so much hash power and mining concentrated in China was something that was actually a negative uh, for the thesis long-term Bitcoin. It's the same reason why people don't want to see oil production in politically unstable areas. You know, you really want... Uh, censorship resistance to mean mining should be done where it's lowest cost production. And that wasn't necessarily China. So it's absolutely a positive development, but institutional investors aren't necessarily the, the new buyers of Bitcoin in 2021. I think that there's retail and a lot of meme investing. And I think that their reaction to the headlines is really speaking to the idea that you are trying to transfer Bitcoin right now from these sort of meme hands or people buying it for the price into hands of people who appreciate really the technology and the idea of sound money.
3: Yeah, Tom, to that very point, uh, Kalonovic over at J.P. Morgan today has a, uh, some results of an investor survey. Uh, the view on crypto is very divided. He says 51% feel it's here to stay or even becoming an important asset. 49% say it's, quote, rat poison or a temporary mm-hmm. fad. Um, I wonder, you've been so vocal on crude right now as as an underappreciated asset. What would you rather buy right now, Bitcoin or oil?
6: Um, Well, if I had to say uh, I'd rather make money and not try to be right, to me the oil picture and supply-demand dynamics and investor skepticism about that is so attractive that that's why energy stocks have been our number one pick this year. But when I look at pure technology and secular growth opportunities, I don't think there's, it, it would be very hard for people to find another generational multi-decade story outside of digital assets. So, so as much as 2021 feels like, uh, you know, a terrible year for crypto investors, I mean, in, in a fractal of a decade, this is, you know, this is kind of noise and it's a great buying opportunity.
0: Tom, if we're looking at this as a multi-generational story, I wonder if we're focused on the wrong thing right now. China's crackdown. The headlines that we have been getting has been blamed in part for this sell-off. But the crypto world has always known that China does not want a decentralized currency that it cannot control. Could it be the institutionalization of Bitcoin that is actually hurting its price and perhaps limiting its use cases? Because the thesis behind cryptocurrencies is that it exists outside the system and it provides something that the traditional banking system doesn't.
6: Uh, yes. I mean, the, the Bitcoin's, you know, the actual sort of story and, and usefulness is evolving. But there really isn't a better way for people to, to have security and to move money. As you know, Bitcoin, you know, you can still move millions of dollars on the Bitcoin blockchain without having to do, pops through swift and um you know potential errors as you know like swift 10 percent of all wire transfers have to be manually intervened and there's a lot of security i mean in in its 11 year history bitcoin's never had a fraudulent entry on its blockchain and as you know six percent of all financial transaction transactions today are considered suspicious so um i think it's it's gr- it's a gr- it's very sound money It's good to see mining diversified and ultimately, you know, Bitcoin needs to sort of show that it is an ESG friendly um, way of actually sort of managing uh, someone's, you know, monetary system. So it's it's an evolution, but I wouldn't say mining is all bad, but I think as a headline, it certainly scares a lot of retail investors.
0: Well, Tom, thanks for being with us again and providing your thoughts. We'll keep tracking it as well as your target. See you again soon.
6: Great. Thanks.
4: Digital dating companies seeing a recent surge in their share prices on top of some news on video out of Tinder this morning. Julia Borston has got that for us ahead of an interview later this hour. Julia.
1: Well, John, online dating also saw a surge during the pandemic, and now Tinder is launching new tools to help it grow market share in what Tinder Parent Match predicts will be a summer of love. Now, Tinder users can upload videos as part of their profiles. The platform is launching a new way to browse other users based on shared interests, and you can participate in a virtual experience with new people, including a new interactive speed dating type feature called Hot Takes. Now, the idea is all to give more background on people before they commit to meeting in person. Tinder's new features ramp up competition with Bumble, which also enables users to do video dates. And since Bumble's IPO on February 11th, Bumble shares are up about 26 percent. While shares of Tinder Parent Match are down 1 percent since then, though they are up about 48 percent since that company spun off from IAC on July 1st. Now, going into the summer, nearly half of analysts have a buy rating on Bumble and just over half have a hold rating, while 67% of analysts have a buy rating on Match, 28% have a hold, and 6% have a sell. We'll be talking about all this and more with Tinder CEO Jim Lanzone. That's coming up later in the hour. John?
4: All right. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Hot takes from Tinder, as we just mentioned. Amazon Prime Day 2, and is Sundar Pichai too nice? Big Hour of Tech Check. Just getting started.
7: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block.
3: Time for a gut check this morning. It is Vimeo. Cowan calls it its best small to mid cap stock idea for the year. Well positioned to gain some share to close out 2021. Shares down about 1%, but uh, well off the high, the opening day high, guys, of 61. John?
4: Yeah. And another $5 billion plus of sales for Amazon. It's first prime day as uh, day two continues this morning. First of two prime days this year. I should say. Our next guest used to work at Amazon, now the CEO of Commerce IQ, just raised a $60 million Series C. Uh, Guri Hanan. Good, good to see you. Now, um, I want to ask an overall question about the significance of Prime Day at a time when we've seen a lot of the small businesses on Amazon's platform challenged by targeting limits uh, in the latest version of iOS, iOS 14 Uh, and also kind of a movement toward Shopify as uh, an option for smaller businesses to take more control of the overall experience. What's the important narrative in this year's Prime Day?
8: So, look, uh, the way that we think about e-commerce, 85% of total e-commerce in the U.S. is happening on indirect websites like Amazon, Walmart.com, Target.com, and Kroger.com. 38% of e-commerce in the U.S. still is happening on Amazon. Amazon is the white elephant of e-commerce. And if you have to win the e-commerce battlefront, you really have to nail down the indirect channels like Amazon and Walmart. Uh, Shopify, for instance, they address the market, which is the direct-to-consumer, which is only 15% of total e-commerce in the market. And hence, if you're a brand, if you're a seller, you have to nail down the indirect channels in um, uh, in e-commerce
4: okay and so guru where does where does commerce iq fit into that and how important is having really great data on each part of you know that that cycle of addressing the end customer
8: john commerce iq is the management platform for a vp of e-commerce at a colgate or a nestle or a johnson and johnson to win an e-commerce as i mentioned to you e-commerce is on a massive growth path we actually added four years of growth to e-commerce in just last nine months as opposed to the previous four years now here's a not so obvious fact as i mentioned most of that growth most of the dollars actually came in 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 the uh, indirect channels and uh, if you look at how traditionally brands have managed an indirect channel like say a walmart or a kroger they have a traditional salesperson sitting down over a dinner and negotiating deals well enter amazon amazon's an algorithm you can't take an algorithm out for dinner that's where commerce iq comes in we are essentially powering the automation engine to work with an algorithm called an amazon or a walmart.com or an instacart.com what's exciting for us is over a period of time this is a seven to eight x bigger opportunity than say a shopify
3: Guru, going into Prime Day, um, there were some. Are there are still some still who uh, are worried about supply chain issues, uh, reducing the number of quote unquote deals, uh, certainly cost pressures in shipping, and there are others who argue that we don't even at this point truly understand the way the supply chain clogging is going to affect back to school and holiday. I wonder, do you think that's overstated?
8: Supply chain problems are still very big in e-commerce right now mainly because of two reasons. Number one, there is still a supply constraint in the market, and that's because of global chip shortages or just general manufacturing capacity issues that we've been seeing. And the second thing is around the warehouse capacity of retailers like Amazon. So you're still seeing a lot of supply shortages. If you're a brand, you really have to make sure that you are almost treating your advertising and traffic generation as a, a mutual fund or a stock ticker where you're constantly watching the inventory supply, the profitability of an item and all that, and start to move ads and shopper traffic in a way that you are driving traffic to more in-stock items. That's a big trend that we're seeing hmm. in this day, this time's Prime Day.
0: Guru, something you said a few moments ago was really interesting. You said that if you're a retailer, you have to nail down those indirect channels, but isn't Shopify and some of the other direct-to-consumer companies reducing that proposition? Doesn't the success of brands like Allbirds and Warby Parker uh, prove that direct-to-consumer actually works, and in some cases, perhaps better than listing your products on Amazon or Walmart?
8: Well, think about it. When you're buying a toothpaste, do you go to Colgate.com or do you go to Amazon.com? You're buying a diaper for your kid. Are you going to Huggies.com? Are you going to Uh, amazon or (laughs) walmart.com. No, I'm
0: talking shoes, not not diapers. I'm talking about consumer brands like Allbirds, which you cannot find on Amazon. Amazon actually created its own copycat to list on its site. So no, I'm not talking about diapers, something that's very functional. I'm talking about brand power, star power that these direct to consumer brands are getting that they wouldn't be getting on Amazon, or at least they argue they may not.
8: You're absolutely right. Brand power and in fact. The intelligence behind the shopper uh, is really from the direct-to-channel, direct-to-consumer channels. But the reality and the problem here is that that's still only less than 15% of total e-commerce, right? And if you're not in apparel, let's say you're not in the soft lines, uh, even now, even now, even if you're if you're not in uh, soft lines, which is well, <laughs> say you're selling. Guru, yeah, I might.
0: I might counter that the Honest Company has made buying diapers direct-to-consumer pretty popular. But anyways, we can, we can have that debate another time. It'll be interesting to see how it uh, shakes out 15% for now. I think that's going to grow.
8: Definitely. I think we are adding, look, e-commerce is adding dollars day in and day out. Uh, the uh, growth rate is just phenomenal. As I mentioned, we've seen about uh, the, the e-commerce growth rate is, uh, has uh, jumped to about 30 to 40% CAGR in the last one year versus, say, a 15 to 20% CAGR that we saw in various categories the year before and leading up. And hence, cool. dollars are going to come in, whether you are in, on, have a Shopify store or an indirect store. The dollars are going to come in. The reality is it's going, it's going across the board, and hence most of the dollars are still going into indirect channels. You still have a situation where top 10 retail websites in the U.S. are driving 60% of total e-commerce in the U.S.
4: All right, let's think about Guru Hari Haran. Commerce IQ CEO. Thank you.
8: Thank you.
0: We have lots more coming up. You heard from Tom Lee earlier today. He's sticking by his $100,000 target for Bitcoin this year. Stay with us. Lots more Tech Check returns in just a few minutes.
7: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block
3: Resetting here near the bottom of the hour. I'm Carl Quintanillo with John Ford, Deirdre Bosa, Julia Borston. Welcome back to Tech Check. Julia's got more on the Tinder news that we broke earlier with the CEO. That's coming up. But first, a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hey, Rahel.
9: Hi, Carl. Good morning. And here is your CNBC News update of this hour. As home prices rise, sales are falling. Existing home sales fell 0.9% in May compared to April. That's according to the National Association of Realtors. It's the fourth straight month of declines. The median home sale price hit an all-time high last month, topping $350,000. European antitrust regulators are opening another Google investigation. This one is looking at whether the company favors its own display advertising technology by restricting access to user data. Google says that its services are competitive and effective. And Reuters is reporting a $500 million compensation fund is now open for the families of the 346 people killed in two crashes of Boeing 737 MAX jet. It was created as part of a settlement with the Justice Department. Each eligible family will receive nearly $1.5 million. You're now up to date. Carl, I'll send it back to you.
3: All right, well, thank you very much. Meantime, we're looking at uh, tech stocks price action over the last month. Dom Chu has a look at how some investors have been buying the dips here. Dom, hey,
5: I mean, old habits die hard, right, Carl? Over the last decade plus since the great financial crisis, mega cap technology, mega cap communication services, media type stocks have always been on shopping lists, and it's kind of reared its head again this time around through this last dip cycle over the class over the course of the last. Four to six weeks. If you take a look at the Nasdaq versus the S&P 500, and certainly the Dow, that Nasdaq trade has reemerged as the outperformer as folks have kind of gotten back into that technology and communication services trade. If you look from a sector perspective, it is technology and communication services that have both outperformed the S&P 500 over a one-month period. Now, within those sectors, overall, three names really stand out on the tech and com services side with regard to real outperformance over the. Course of the last month. We are talking about semiconductors and specifically NVIDIA, one of the top, if not at this stage, the top performing technology stock over the last month. Adobe, also one of the top few stocks on a one month basis, and Twitter, far and away, the best performing stock in the communication services sector over that one month period but they are not the best performers. You have to look down the list for some of the other ones over there. If you look at Enphase on the solar energy side of things, also ServiceNow, cloud computing, cloud services and PayPal on on payments technology, they have been some of the real outperformers overall in that technology trade. So, as people have kind of funneled into those particular moves, those stocks have really been outperformers. But I want to highlight one more stock and I'm going to show you the one year chart or year to date chart for this one. This is Fortinet Cybersecurity, you want to talk about a stock that really hasn't had a dip whatsoever, John, over the course of the last year to date period. Cybersecurity, of course, a big focus for many traders and investors given the news flow about hackings, colonial pipeline, and everything else. Fortinet, probably the, the most stable outperformer in the entire tech trade over the course of the last month. So just a handful of those names, John, really standing out on shopping lists. I'll send things back over to you.
4: Indeed, Dom, thanks. Another stock. That's up about 6% over the last month, 38 and a half uh, year to date. Google, New York Times, is out with a piece where some Google executives, though, see cracks in their company's success. We're going to break down a different kind of critical look at Google CEO Sundar Pachai. That's next. We'll be back in a moment.
0: Under Pachai's leadership at Google, being called into question, the New York Times, citing 15 current and former executives at the search giant, who say the chief's incremental approach to innovation has hurt the company. The piece notes that the executives said Google continued to be rocked by workplace culture fights, and that Mr. Pachai's attempts to lower the temperature had the opposite effect. However, the executives also described Pachai as a quote thoughtful and caring leader, and the company under his tenure has grown more than 230%. Take a look at that stock chart right there. Guys, uh, the piece was interesting. It doesn't make mention of someone like Ruth Porat, who, the CFO, who is known to be more tough, especially when it comes to cost-cutting. And, of course, these cultural cracks were so long before Pachai got there with its slogan, don't be evil, the all-hands meetings where employees were encouraged to be very open with their thoughts.
4: Yeah, I think uh, the detail in here is great. You know, I think that there's some real criticism to be levied at Pachaya and Google leadership over the, the handling of uh, Google's ethical AI team and Timnit Gebru and the, her, her dismissal. But it's interesting, Carl, usually you see these kind of takedowns when the stock is down or when a company has clearly lost its way. This stock is up. Google's been doing pretty well. It sort of reminds me of the Tim Cook's Apple can't innovate criticism that we were hearing a couple of years ago. Why didn't Apple come up with the Amazon Echo? We don't hear that so much anymore, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the piece, the very first paragraph, guys, they do point out that
3: things are going great. Uh, and, John, it kind of reminds me of the time where we, the big complaint was that they had no discipline on the cost side and were spending too much on moonshots. So it's definitely hard to win all constituencies uh, at the same time. Uh, we told you about the summer of love for uh, dating stocks. Will Tinder's new features announced this morning uh, take match to some new heights? The CEO's with us. Stay with us.
1: Welcome back to Tech Check. Tinder, which has had about has about 7 million subscribers and generates about 60% of Match Group's revenue, unveiling some new features today. Joining us now to discuss is the CEO of Tinder, Jim Lanzone. He joined the company just last August. Jim, thanks for talking to us today. So explain to us, why did you launch these features? Video, new ways to interact before you meet in person.
10: Yeah, hi, Julia. Um, well, yeah, it start with video, probably the, the biggest one. You know, Tinder became number one and it has had over 65 billion matches since inception because it was so simple, uh, you know, to upload pictures and a bio and start swiping in a very dynamic environment. Um, but more than 50% of our users now are Gen Z. And that is a generation that, you know, thrives on self-expression and, and that starts with video. So starting today, they can upload video the same way they would photos. And then start to see those videos in their uh, Tinder stream the same way they would anything else and just swipe through.
1: So, Jim, um, I, I have to wonder how much these changes reflect your background as an executive at video companies. You know, you created CBS All Access. What does that background mean for your vision for the future of Tinder?
10: Yeah, I mean, I think and we've seen this both with Gen Z and with basically everybody using Tinder coming through COVID, which is, you know, it's a little bit less of a transactional environment now where people want to, you know, get to know people better virtually uh, before they agree to meet offline. And it really has opened up a whole area of, and we almost call it swipe possibly, not just swipe left or right, but the zone of, of the journey of getting to know people. And, and they've really embraced doing that online before they meet offline. And that really sets up the situation where Tinder is this iconic brand, but can really become more of a platform and provide experiences and all kinds of other ways for people to get to know each other. Again, not because it's like a social media app. We want to you know, get their attention and, and monetize that. We're a subscription-based service, um, but really to be, enable them to have more successful outcomes and find that spark with somebody. So that to me is really exciting. And it's, yeah, part of that is content, but there really is a rich roadmap of innovation that I feel like we can really do here. And I've done, so many other parts of consumer internet in my my career this just seems like yeah. a really really interesting one to tackle
1: you you mentioned social media Jim I of course have to mention that Facebook has its own dating service you also are competing with bumble. Do you think these new service these new tools, which are available for free will convince your users to subscribe and to pay uh, pay for those services even though they're free or? Do you think that this is going to send people over to Rival Services? How will this impact competition?
10: Hopefully the things we launch won't send them uh, to to Rival Services. (laughs) But, yeah, it's a member-based service. And, you know, you mentioned our subscriber numbers. It's all about creating more value. And in that way, it is a lot like streaming subscription services. Uh, And so, you know, besides video, another one that we're launching today is an explore tab or area of Tinder, uh, which will have all kinds of things, uh, one of which will be experiences and activities that people can do together online. Another is giving people more control over Tinder and actually telling us what categories they want uh, to serve through, uh, through people within. So an example is pet mode, or just, just going through people who also you know, love pets or thrill seekers where people will find adventurers uh, like themselves. Uh, and that will all sit permanently now within a tab on Tinder uh, for people to, you know, to, to lean forward maybe instead of the, the lean back experience that we're known for. And look, Tinder is number one in over 110 countries. Uh, it is incumbent upon a leader to not relax and and uh, and to keep innovating on behalf of members. So that's what we're going to do.
1: Well, well, some fascinating innovations adding more nuance to that platform. Tinder CEO Jim Lanzone, thanks for talking to us this morning.
4: Thanks, Julie. Yeah, look at Tinder moving beyond the one swipe stand. Uh, shares of NVIDIA, meanwhile, up more than 20% in just the last month. Raymond James thinks you can go higher. Read why they're upping the price target there this morning. That's only on CNBC.com slash pro. We're back in a moment.
3: New Yorkers across the five boroughs heading to the polls today, casting votes in a pivotal Democratic primary that will most likely determine New York's next mayor. A key point of debate amongst frontrunners, big tech and its power over the city, with candidates chiming in on how they would or wouldn't have welcomed Amazon's failed HQ2 plan in 2019 to build a second headquarters in Queens. While Bill de Blasio couldn't make it happen, current frontrunner Eric Adams, Brooklyn's borough president, said he would have supported the deal with modifications and that New York could have, quote, changed. Change the way Amazon does business. Other leaders in the polls, former presidential candidate Andrew Yang, former city official Catherine Garcia have also voiced support for Amazon in the city, with Andrew Yang even going so far as to call the deal's failure a mistake. But not everyone's on board to bring Amazon back. Second place in the polls, Maya Wiley, former de Blasio official, has pledged more regulation on Amazon's growing presence. And Bill de Blasio himself, once a proponent of that deal, tweeted out yesterday, quote, Happy Monday to everyone except a trillion dollar corporation that refuses to pay their fair share in taxes and protect their workers. How each candidate plans to entice big tech has been a key point in this race, which leads us to... What if that Amazon deal were still on the table? What if Amazon comes back? John, it's amazing the drama that was built up in anticipation of that
4: deal. What happened in the midst of it and that we're still talking about it 2 years later. Yeah, and in a way, I don't know that the politics have moved that far since then. I mean, like a lot of I don't live in New York City, D, but a lot of things seem like it's a two-party system in the city. It's the left versus the far left. And the left wanted Amazon there, and the far left didn't. de Blasio wanted it, was upset, as a lot of people were, when Amazon walked away, said, you know, we don't want to have to deal with with this uh, if the Democrats, in essence, can't uh, get together with a single voice on this. I I, I don't know. If it were still on the table, Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like the same thing might happen.
0: (laughs) It could. Uh, You know, I think Amazon maybe was looking for some incentives, some subsidies, and we know that... Not long after that sort of HQ2, if you want to call it maybe a fiasco, after Amazon backed out of New York City, they still bought the Lord and Taylor Taylor building and hired or are hiring 2,000 workers. I do wonder, guys, though, you know who I think would make a big pitch? Mayor Suarez in Miami. I bet he'd be (laughs) awfully eager. To get a big company like uh amazon in miami <laughs> <laughs> anyways guys moving on miss part if you missed part of the show today follow our podcast listen anytime anywhere on the go available wherever you download your podcast tech check returns after one more quick break One more thing we're watching before we go. GameStop jumping this morning after the video game retailer announced the completion of its equity offering. In total, selling an additional 5 million shares and raising more than a billion dollars to accelerate growth. Shares, guys, they are still up almost 1,000 percent since January. I had to go look at its 52-week low, just under $4. Its 52-week high, of course, nearly $400. Who would have thought <laughs> over the last previous months, guys, that it would kind of hold up around this 200 level?
3: Yeah, we're going to watch uh, GME for sure. That's uh, a lot of uh, capital that's been raised. In the meantime, guys, we'll keep our eyes open uh, for Powell on the Hill begins at 2 p.m. Eastern time. The remarks are out, as you know, but the Q&A will be important. And John Bollinger today suggesting a potential bottom
0: in Bitcoin. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.